And I'll read from verse 1 to the end of the chapter. Let me pray for our time. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this high privilege to consider your word this morning, the word that is above all words, the light above all light, that points us to your Son, Jesus Christ, in all places. And so, Father, we ask now that that would be accomplished by your Spirit, that you would enlighten us according to the truth of your word, that you would point us to Jesus, and that you would make us like him. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hebrews chapter 9. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was the second section called the most holy place having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant, covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened, as long as the first section is still standing, which symbolizes, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our consciences from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant, So that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not enforced, as long as the one who made it is still alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was an Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet and wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God has commanded you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. 
Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ entered into, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. As we've looked over the book of Hebrews over these past weeks, we again are reminded of a people who are sluggish, whose theology is dull, and it needs to be honed, it needs to be purified, it needs to be clarified first and foremost with Christ. That is the answer that these people need. They need to see Christ more clearly. And sadly, these people are veering off in a direction that Scripture does not, does not uh, tell us to go. They are looking for a Levitical Messiah, somebody who would reinstitute the Levitical priesthood in a grander way. And the problem with that is that the Levitical priesthood was never made to be there forever. It was a type, it was a shadow of realities in heaven. It was a type of of Christ to come, but it wasn't to be continued on as it was The priesthood would be ended. The Levitical priesthood would be ended. And there would be a new priesthood, a priesthood in the order of Melchizedek that we heard about recently. And so these people are muddled, they're confused, they're off track. And over and over again we've said he brings Christ before their eyes. And he does so by referring to Scripture. He goes back to the Old Testament. He makes his point from the Old Testament, demonstrating the, the, the sureness of the Old Testament as it All along was leading to Christ. In all of its types and signs, it was leading to Christ. And as I was studying this week, I I was struck by the Lord's kindness to Israel. The Lord's kindness to Israel. And I'll, I'll get to that in just a second, but I want us to start off with just three points of kindness from God before I get into the text itself. There's three things that really lead up to this, this epistle in many ways. And the first one is this. The question is, why did God not bring judgment after the fall? Why did God not bring judgment after the fall? We see in the creation of man that he was giving certain stipulations. And he was not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Upon the pain of death. That he would die surely as he disobeyed that commandment. And yet we see that Adam failed He disobeyed by eating it and brought judgment on himself and brought sin and corruption into the world. So now we have a contaminated world. But the question is, why did God not destroy him? Why did he just destroy him right off the bat? Because God's holiness had been violated in some sense by Adam. We see a a clear understanding of this by the Apostle Paul in Romans 9, 22 to 24 
where Paul says about those who are being saved and those who are not, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make his power known, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Now, what's the point of this passage? Why is this so striking? It says that God has endured with much patience vessels of wrath. And from the beginning, from the fall, Adam was, ended of himself a vessel of wrath. God could have said, I'm done with humanity. We're done with it. You violated my holiness. And to think that when Paul wrote this, Paul has seen the course of human history before him. And the wrath of God has been stored up over and over and over and over for that last day. That day of wrath that Christ saves us from. So that every evil will be avenged. Every offense of God will be avenged on the last day for those outside of Christ. And when you think of the holy character of God, how hard that must be. His patience, his forbearance. I'm sure you've had situations where you've had to deal with difficult people or difficult situations. And, you, and you, it's so hard to be forbearing and so patient. But none of us are like God with perfect holiness, with perfect goodness, with perfect kindness. And yet since the beginning of the creation of man, since the fall of man, he is born patiently with them. Not to never be executed in justice. There will be a day of justice for those outside of Christ. You may have received an emergency text this past week. There was really bad weather in the area. My wife got one of these uh, emergency texts on her phone to warn her of dangerous situations. And the word of God is there to warn us of a great dangerous situation. The culmination of the ages when Christ returns. And his wrath will be poured out on all of his enemies. Nobody will get away with anything. And yet in the midst of it, God has sent his son to bear the penalty that we deserve. And now... The the, the door is open for us to come to Christ, to avoid the wrath to come, to flee to Christ, to avoid that wrath that God is so patiently born with. And yet on the last day will finally be unleashed on all of his enemies. And so consider the kindness of God. He should have wiped us out from the beginning, really. Yes, we're broken, but we're rebels. Adam did not want to submit to the kind and wise governance of God. And instead of listening to and heeding to and obeying his voice, he turned to the father of lies and brought ruin on the whole human race. The whole human race. And so consider God's kindness and his patience. Even now, even now, as many live as his enemies... And they enjoy the good things that he gives them, the beauty of the created order, the, be- the wonderful gifts of family, of marriage, of food and drink. 
And yet one day that wrath will be unleashed for all those who have not turned to Christ. And so our world right now is under this emergency order with the only hope of escape is in Christ. Only in Christ. And yet it's been God's good pleasure to send him as a a sacrifice for our sins to be received by faith. So we have the the kindness of God and not destroying us at the fall. But secondly, we have the kindness of God in giving absolutely true promises to what God would do to remedy man's fallen state and to sustain him in the midst of a fallen world. We see it at the beginning of, right after the fall, God says to man, I will put enmity between, to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The first seed of the gospel to come of Christ That God was going to do something even in light of the situation at hand at the fall. It was in seed form. It wasn't totally understood. But it was a promise that God had said that he would remedy things. And over the course of history, he made other promises. He made promises to Abraham. He made promises to the people of Israel that there would be a prophet like Moses to come. There would be a priest like Samuel to come. There would be a king like David. Even in David's line, who would be the source of salvation and for the source of redemption of a people for God for himself. And he gave him the picture of the tabernacle and the picture of the temple and the pictures of the sacrifices, which were all pictures and copies and types that would point further on, further on to Christ and what he would do. These great promises that sustained his people under duress, just like you and I are at times. The word of God gives us promises to hold on to that are absolutely sure. We heard earlier in the book of Hebrews that God who cannot lie, that should be enough. If God said it, it should be enough. But it's like there's a double bond that he swears to him about himself. There's nobody else to swear above him, so he swears to himself. I will do this. So it's like a double bond on those promises. And how much we need that in the midst of turmoil and trial and discouragement. And yet they're absolutely sure and absolutely true because God has said it and he's sworn he will keep his word. And he gives us these promises that are so precious to us now. These promises that say that will lead us out of this sinfulness and even our own hearts and make us holy, make us like Christ. These precious promises Peter speaks of. And so God has been kindness, kind to us and not just obliterating, obliterating us from the beginning. He's been kind to give us these promises, but he's been kind to give them to a certain people. Consider God's kindness to Israel above all nations, the the privilege of receiving and stewarding the very promises of God, the very promises of the Messiah. They were stewarded with those things. They were to to, uh, be the receptacles of these promises and to pass them on generation to generation to generation. And that's exactly what they did over the course of history, failing often but Still, the promises went on because God had made the promises. And though man might fail, God will not fail. 
In Psalm 147, 19 to 20, we read, He declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and rules to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know his rules. In all the other nations of the world, he was being forbearing with their sins. He didn't just wipe them out. But with Israel, he, he, he blessed them and gave them his rules and his statutes. He gave them the light that would lead to Christ ultimately. He didn't have to do that. He wasn't obligated, but he did it of his own good pleasure, his own good kindness. So that we can say that salvation comes from the Jews in the sense that they had the promises. They knew what was supposed to happen. And it all came to pass exactly as God said it would in the course of history. What a great, great privilege Israel had. And as I was studying this week, as I was reading this passage and seeing the types that God gives Israel, what bright lights they were to point to Christ. What bright lights. I thought of the Apostle Paul. I I felt like I had a better sense of Paul's great sadness in Romans 9 when he thought about so many of his countrymen were turning away from Christ, rejecting Christ. The very one that his heritage had said would come. This is what Paul says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises, all these things we've just spoken about. To them belongs the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. You start to get a sense of Paul's great sadness and anguish. This Paul, who was a great theologian, but at the same time was filled with sorrow because so many of his Really, his extended family rejected Christ. After Christ had been portrayed so clearly in types and signs over the course of history. Decade after decade. Century after century. Millennium after millennium. And so God has been so kind. He didn't des- his kindness is, is sovereign. At the, at the first fall, at the fall of man, Adam should have zipped his lip and said, I am a guilty man. But already we see the infusion of sin. We talked about last week about the two brothers, Cain and Abel. A brother kills a brother. But we also see it immediately in in the marriage of Adam and Eve. The woman you gave me, the serpent, no owning of sin, no saying, yes, I'm guilty. As David would say later after his sin. And yet God is so forbearing and so patient, but God is not mocked. There's an, there'll be an end to that, that open door when Christ comes. That's why the gospel goes out now in fullness to, to let people know there's one way of salvation, and it's Christ and Christ alone. Built on the historical uh, realities of Israel and finally fulfilled in the Son of God in the, in the fullness of time. And so that leads us up to this passage, really, because the writer, as we've said, has built everything upon the Word of God. 
Every point he makes, he takes them back to Scripture. He quotes Scripture here and there, all over the place, for every one of his points. And so this morning, I want to look at three aspects of the superiority of Christ and his work. The first is the superiority of the covenant that he mediates, the superiority of the covenant that he mediates. Secondly, the superiority of his blood, the superiority of his blood, and finally, the superiority of the results of his work. So first, the superiority of the covenant, uh, chapter 9, verse 1 and 15. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. And then the writer goes on and starts explaining what, what was a part of that. And then in verse 15, we have, Therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. As we look at the Mosaic law, as we look at the Mosaic economy, as we saw with the children, that model of a model, what God had been doing in the history of Israel is tutoring them, pointing them to Christ by types and signs. And there were regulations, and they were all external regulations, basically. That even to enter the Holy of Holies, blood had to be shed, not human blood, but animal blood had to be shed because man is unholy. And in the Holy of Holies was God's special presence. And yet all of that was a pedagogical, essential tool to teach them of Christ and what Christ would do. And so the covenant that was under the Mosaic law, it was types and signs, and it had regulations, and there was shedding of blood within that system. But it was a type. Literally, it was a living parable, a living parable of what God would do, that all those types and signs were to point forward beyond themselves to Christ and the heavenly sanctuary. Earlier in the book, of Hebrews in chapter 9, the writer says this. In, cha- in verse 8, By this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not, is not yet opened, as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. Symbolic, that word is like parable. That not only was that part of the parable, but all of the Mosaic law was a parable of types pointing to Christ. And so the blood of bulls and goats could never take away our sins. They could never make our conscience clean. Because they weren't made for that. It was for this mosaic economy that God had set up as a tutor for us, leading us to Christ. And yet Christ himself was the mediator of a better reality that his, his, his work would go into the true holy of holies and really accomplish redemption and really provide for a clean conscience by his own work. The old covenant is glorious in its own sense, but it has faded away. It has been superseded by the, the new covenant. So when we read the old covenant, it's so important. It's not like, ah, get rid of it. It's to learn of Christ there. What does it tell me of Christ? Because the writer to the Hebrews has demonstrated over and over again. That's exactly what it's there for. That's exactly what it's there for. 
And so whereas the Mosaic Covenant was a type and a sign leading to the reality, Christ was the mediator of the reality. What that Mosaic Covenant could not accomplish, which is the redemption of our souls, only Jesus could do in the New Covenant. But there's also superior blood, verses 7 to 12. But into the second, only the high priest goes, but he once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened, as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. But when Christ appeared as the high priest of good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of bulls and calves, or goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. The blood of bulls and goats had its place. It had its place in the Mosaic Covenant. It was sufficient for that. It had its effectual working for that. But it didn't have the effectual working for the redemption of souls. A man had sinned. And so a man must die. We understand why bulls and goats can't. That would just be totally wrong because a man did it. A man must die for it. Eye for an eye. Tooth for a tooth. And so the second Adam comes and takes on human flesh and he he bears our iniquities on the cross. A man for a man. The perfect correlation. There's no way that the blood of bulls and goats could ever accomplish that. We read in chapter 10, if we read on a little bit in, in the book of Hebrews, the writer quotes, he says, "...sacrifices and offerings you have not desired." but a body you have prepared for me. That's the second person of the Trinity. Before he took on human flesh, was going to have a body prepared for him. And he would be born of a woman, born under the law. Not to live a wonderful life in this world where people are applauding him, but to bear our sins, to be the perfect, precise sacrifice, man for man. And it was only his blood that was acceptable. As the high priest had to go in first, he had to offer sacrifices for his sins and then for the sins of the people. Christ had no sin of his own. So he didn't have that burden. He was a holy, perfect high priest. And then he went in to offer his own blood, not the blood of bulls and goats that wouldn't do anything. He offered his own blood, his perfect blood. And so what, a, what an amazing thing that, that God should become man. That he might save us by sending his son to become a man and take our penalty. We appreciate the mosaic economy, but it only insofar as it leads us to see Christ better. Those sacrifices did still some sense of 
God's wrath in some sense in a temporal way. But Christ's blood does it forever. It deals with our sin forever. He didn't have to go in over and over and over again, year after year. But one time, it was done. I'm sure many of you have had illnesses or injuries where you've had to have multiple applications of medicine or multiple operations. I've I've seen this over the last recent years. People have an accident. They have to operation after operation. Wouldn't it be so wonderful you could just have one operation and have it done with? And as the sacrifices were offered year after year, although God required them, although they were necessary for the Mosaic Covenant, there had to be the thought, this can't, this can't take away our sins. We keep doing it. And that's exactly right, because it was pointing to Christ. One time, all done. One time, all done. It's finished. Even now, the effects are still in effect for us now. He has dealt with sin with his own blood. And that's why there's no more sacrificial system. That's why these people look in vain for a resurgence of the Levitical priesthood. It's going backwards. It's an insult to God. I was thinking about the nations and even Israel would sacrifice their children. First of all, they're taking a life unnecessarily. But secondly, it's an insult. Do you think that a sinful child can bear your sins? No, no. Only my sinless child can bear your sins. There's only been one child without sin, and he is my beloved son, in whom I'm well pleased. And he can cover your sins, and he has. So we have a superior covenant, superior blood, and superior results. Verses 12 to 13 and 26. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of bulls, of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, Purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. In verse 26, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. The blood of, of bulls, of goats, no animal blood could take care of it. They had to come back the next year and the next year, and the next year. But Christ did it once for all. It is a finished act of God on our behalf in Christ. He has not just opened the way into the Holy of Holies. We saw in the reading this morning and in the the model that only one person could go into the Holy of Holies. And yet Christ entered heaven itself with his own blood, the the holy high priest on our behalf to be done away with our sins himself. We see the trickle-down effect. We spoke about it last week about the rending of the the curtain of the temple. One of my sisters in the Lord rebuked me and said, you should have said, God just ripped it. God just ripped it, which is absolutely true, but there's a little bit more science to it. If you turn with me, turn to Matthew 27. 
Matthew 27, we get a sense of the ripple-down effect of what Christ has done in his payment for our sins. Matthew 27, beginning with verse 50, Jesus is on the cross. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs were also opened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, This was truly, truly this was the Son of God. That the effects of what happened in heaven, much like in the book of Job, where there's these interactions in heaven, they trickle down into the life of Job that Job knew nothing about. On this account, we know what has happened in the Holy of Holies. And it's trickled down to earth, even at the, at the cross, where all these things happened. This unleashing of power, this unleashing of the new age, never to be reversed. That even in the earth, the effects were seen. Because Christ had done it. He paid the penalty. His blood is sufficient and it's been received and accepted. And it's good. It's perfect. That is our gospel. That is our good news. All glory to God that the Son has done it. He has died in our place. He has paid our penalty. And it's been accepted. It's been accepted. And these have consequences. When we think about, we've talked about this before, that we're called to be holy. As we've come to trust in Christ, he, the Holy One died for us that we might too be holy. We don't throw away the Word of God. We learn about what pleases Him. That's the problem of the Hebrews. They couldn't discern between good and evil like they should. They weren't growing. I think sometimes we think that Christian life is an idle life. It's not idle. It's supposed to be dynamic, dynamic unto the Lord, growing in holiness, finding out what pleases the Lord, moving into those ways by the power of the Holy Spirit. God convicts us of sin by the Spirit, but then he shows us the newness of life, and we begin to walk into it and become more like Christ. Do you see the logical absurdity to continue in sin? It's been done away with. It's been paid for. All that corruption. Why continue in it? Why continue in the filth? It's totally irrational in light of the gospel. I've heard of people who... I knew of a a certain athlete who was struggling with a certain uh, addiction. He was excellent. He was one of the best in the world. And... He even had a medical procedure to fix it. But he continued on. And he died. Young. But how much more so for God's people? If our sins have been paid for, and sin is not just guilt, it's corruption, it's enslavement, why walk in it anymore? We don't have to. There's nothing you can do to to earn God's favor because he's already poured it out to us in Christ. So why go on in sin? Why go on in guilt? Just confess your sins to the Lord. Bring them into the light. 
He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Hallelujah. What is salvation? But there's also a warning. There's also a warning. The Apostle Paul warns us in Romans 2.4, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? That's what the gospel does as we see the glory of God is to move us on to Christ's likeness. Not to make excuses for sins. Not to just give full, uh, turn ourselves over to that. But to fight the good fight. The fight against sin by God's grace. As the spirits at work within us to make us holy and make him like his son. And we, we always preach the good news. It is incredible good news. There's no news. As Todd said earlier about the story, there's no story that compares with this. But we have to have the whole story that if you reject Christ, the wrath of God is being stored up. There will be no more mercy. There will be no more second chances. Today is the day of salvation. And we're waiting for the Lord to appear. This is the day of salvation. This is the day to seek Christ. This is the day to repent of your sins and turn to Him. And so, this serious sober book to the letter of the Hebrews, it is serious and sober, and yet it has reason to give us great joy that Christ has done all that we could not do. And that is our hope. Every sin on Him has been laid. Believe in him. Trust in him. Rest in him. Don't make up your own work system. Don't do what the Hebrews did. It's been done once for all. Don't insult God by a personal way of salvation. But receive him now freely, as freely as he has offered. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. There are no words that can convey your your kindness to us in Christ. There's no words that can convey the, the results of what Christ has accomplished on our behalf. And for those who are your people, we'll have all eternity to sing your praises and to speak your praises. But we ask now, Father, before this age ends, this current world age, before your son returns, that we would be sober-minded people, sober-mindedly joyful in the salvation that we have in Christ vigorously pursuing him by your spirit. We ask you would work in us in such a way that we would continue on. We would be unlike the the audience of the letter to the Hebrews. That we would pursue Christ to our last breath, always knowing that we're dependent upon you for every good thing that happens. And yet you've given us all that we need in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.